If you, if you watch HGTV, uh, you likely have run across Candace Olson. She and her team host a program called Divine Design, and they go into people's homes and they take things that are kind of out of sort and transform them and make them new again. They may take an empty loft and turn it into an inviting place, or they may, um, they may take an old tired family room and give it a new lease on life. They, they may take an empty basement and turn it into a, a getaway place. They call it Divine Design. And it may be original to HGTV as a program, but it is not the original Divine Design. For that, we look back to God. As a matter of fact, we go back to the very story of creation. God's incredible design for this universe, His divine design and the zenith of all his handiwork in that creation is, well, us, the human race. We are the original divine design. And so we're going to explore a little bit about what that means to us. How, how is that significant? Now, some of you may be thinking, oh, come on. With all the teeming billions of people scattered around the globe, do you really believe that God knows who I am personally? I do, but you may not. So let me see if I can help convince you if you don't feel that way. The first thing is I want you to see that we were actually created to be known. That's the way God designed us from the beginning, created to be known. This week, if you've been watching the news, you know that the seven billionth human being was born. Danica May Camacho, five pounds, five ounces, or five and a half pounds, actually, uh, born in Manila uh, in the Philippines. Uh, she is actually the poster child for this rather unique event and milestone in human history. Because, you see, we don't really know for sure who the seventh billion is, and, and we don't know exactly where. We just know it was pretty close, and so she became the representative for wherever that may happen, because we don't know, but God does. God knows who the seventh billion is person was. And you say, well, how can you be so sure? I'll tell you. This is why I believe that God knows who the seventh billion person to be born was and, and why God knows you. Let me take you back to the creation story for just a minute in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And I'm also going to take you to chapter 2, verse 7. In verse 26, this is what we read in Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And then chapter 2 is kind of like a parenthetical story that's tucked in that gives more details to human creation. And in verse 7 it says, The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, I believe with all my heart this morning that we are the product of intelligent design, divine design, if you please. And if that's true, and I believe it is, then that makes you and it makes me a child of God. Now, the only other option you have is that you are not the product of intelligent design, that you're the product of random accidents. That makes you a child of chance. Now, which one is more inviting to you? To be a child of God, of intelligent design, or to be a child of chance with no purpose or exact meaning? I like the somewhat facetious way that author Frank Peretti described our origins if God wasn't there. This is how we began in his tongue-in-cheek way without God. You are a meaningless conglomeration of molecules that came together purely by chance millions and millions of years ago. 
dust and gas of the universe floated around and bumped into each other, and they said, hey, I know, let's be organic. Okay. And they formed gooey things that eventually crawled up on the land and grew legs and feet and then eventually fur and kept changing and changing until finally it was an ape-like creature that decided to shave. <laughs> this process can be summed up as from goo to you by way of the zoo. <laughs> now, it's a fun way of describing what is really true. If we are not the product of intelligent design, then we're here by accident. Even Charles Darwin, in his Origin of the Species, wrote this. He said, to suppose that the human eye with so many parts working together could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. Dr. Robert Grange has written, today we can see inside living cells and study the resplendent majesty of a structure so awesome it reeks of divine fingerprints. And if that doesn't convince you, Look into the face of a newborn child. Hold a newborn child in your arms. Look into that face and tell me you're not looking into the heart of God. A preacher friend of mine, Dan Lang, wrote, he said, No mother ever looks into the face of her newborn baby and says, My, what a lovely random collision of gases. <laughs> you look into the face of that of that child and you, and you get a glimpse of the Creator God in this tiny little package is everything that child will need to exist in this world. I do not believe that we are the product of against all odds lucky mutations. I believe we're the product of a Creator who is more than just a Creator. He is a Father who longs for you to know Him as He already knows you. You possess the very Spirit of God in you, you know that. It says he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. The word there that's translated breath is the Hebrew word ruach, and it means spirit as well. It is one and the same, whether you translate breath or whether you translate spirit. And in this case, I think it is both that God breathed into Adam this breath of life, but he also breathed into him his spirit. You're more than the elements of the ground. You, the real you, the real you is God's touch upon your life that separates you from the rest of his marvelous creation. What's more, we've been created in his image. That does not mean physical in appearance. I don't know what God looks like in his appearance, if indeed he has an appearance. But it does mean that we're blessed with a mind and the capacity to reason. We are blessed with emotions and the capacity to feel joy, disappointment, sorrow, elation, anger, peace, and the list goes on. We are blessed with a will and the capacity to choose, to choose to love, to choose to follow, to obey, to make a lasting difference. We are blessed with responsibility to be caretakers of this world and God's creation. When he talks about ruling over or having dominion over the rest of creation, that does not so much infer, infer the power to subdue as it suggests the custodial care and concern for God's creation. You see, it is this ability to work. It is our ability to be responsible. It is our ability to demonstrate genuine care for what God has made that sets us apart again from the rest of creation. This then is how we've been created in the likeness or the image of God. We have a mind. We have emotions. We have will. We have responsibility. We have his spirit. And nothing in the rest of creation can claim 
that. We are the pinnacle, the zenith, and He knows you. Each of us is unique. Now, there's things we share genetically in common with those of the past and those in the present and those in the future, but there are no two exactly alike. Never have been, never will be. You, you are unique in all of human history. Is, isn't that it? too lofty to imagine? There will never be another you. Why are you so unique? Because God made you that way, and he knows you're that way. But there's more. Just because God created us to be known doesn't mean that he knows us, but he does. We are known by the creator. I don't care what you say, he knows us. This is the best part. He doesn't just give us a reason for living. He gives us a relationship in which to live. Life is worth living because God knows who we are. Now I want you to consider the following for just a few moments. When God promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation and that the Savior of the world would be born as one of his descendants, this is what he said to Abraham. God said, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Now, mathematicians who have a lot of extra time on their hands have calculated the grains of sand on the shores around the world, numbering some 5,000 billion billion. Now, to translate that, that is five followed by 21 zeros. But that's just an estimate because you have to take an average. Some grains of sand are really fine. Some grains are coarse. So, you know, there's no way for us to know. Uh, Joachim Hendricks, together with 12 assistants, spent about 1,000 hours <laughs> counting grains of sand. They counted 3,281,579 grains of sand. And that's how much it, 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 it filled. Just that glass saucer, that's 3,281,579 grains of sand. It took them 1,000 hours to count that. God says to Abraham... He'll be as numerous as the sand of the sea. Does that mean that God really meant, Abraham, you're going to have 5,000 billion billion descendants? I don't know that that's what he meant. I think it was a linguistic tool to say, Abraham, you're going to have so many descendants that you're not going to be able to count them all. Just like you can't count all the grains of sand in the world, but God can. God knows every tiny grain of sand. <laughs> Here's an even better picture. I love this passage from the pen of the prophet Isaiah. Look up into the heavens, he writes. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name because of his great power and incomparable strength. Not a single one is missing. Science and astronomy keep learning more and more about this vast universe that we call home. Latest research shows us there's a lot more stars than we ever thought before. There may be as many as 300 sextillion or more stars in the universe. Now that is three followed by 23 zeros. That's three trillion times a hundred billion. Does that help? <laughs> I mean, I, these numbers just are so vast, I can't even begin to comprehend them. Let me see if I can break it down a little bit. Do you know how much a trillion is? Can you have a handle on a trillion? Let's suppose you had a million dollars in $100 bills, you could fit a million dollars in stacks of $100 bills into a paper grocery sack. That's a million dollars. If somebody would give you a million dollars in a grocery sack, you'd say, fine, I'm going to retire and I'll live off the, uh, off the interest of that, wouldn't you? You know how much a trillion is? Let's take a look at this. 
Now see that center section there? That's pallets of $100 bill stacks. A pallet is about 40 inches by 40 inches by about 42 inches high, something like that, give or take. A standard size of pallet, and it is full of $100 bill stacks. That picture that you're seeing there is a double stack of pallets. Look at the size of it compared to a football field and to a soccer field and to a, a, a jet airliner. Look, look at the size compared to the semi up there. That's $1 trillion in $100 bills. If it was in $1 bills, it'd be 100 times bigger than that. Gives you an idea of what it means to be in debt $14 trillion as a country, doesn't it? <laughs> kind of a scary picture when you stop and think about it like that. Now, now I gotta, here's what I want you to see. That's a trillion, a trillion, okay? In your human body are approximately 50 trillion cells. You multiply that times 7 billion people on the planet and you come up with a figure that's about 356 trillion. Does that sound familiar? In other words, there is one star in the universe for every cell in the human body around the globe. Is that awesome or what? And here's the part that gets you. Isaiah says, God knows every one of them by name. And the stars aren't even the crown of his creation. We are. If he knows the stars by name, could it even be fathomable that he wouldn't know your name? The deist is not right. God did not simply wind up the mainspring of the universe, start the process, and abandon us to our own desires. God not only created the universe from the sand to the stars, he entered his creation to be one of us. And in the person of Jesus introduced himself to us so that we would know him. And Jesus paints some of the same pictures with his words. Now, I don't know why God created the tiny sparrow, so maybe we would have, maybe so we'd have a unique understanding about it. He created the sparrow to show that he is the creator of majestic things, but he's the lover of insignificant things. In Luke chapter 12, verse 6, it says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Do you see that? Not one of them is forgotten by God. God knows every sparrow. And when it falls from the sky and it dies, God knows it's gone. If God knows the sparrow, he knows you. And in the next verse it says, Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. If God knows how many individual hairs are on your head, then don't you think he knows better than you know yourself who you are? I mean, how many of you have counted the numbers on your head? Do you know you and yourself as well as God knows you? What an incredible picture. He counts the hair on your head, which changes moment by moment as new hair comes in and old hair falls out. God knows and if you're still not convinced, let me take you on a real short journey through the Gospel of John this morning. John writes in a different way than Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. They write what we call the synoptic Gospels, which, which are, are kind of similar. But John, John comes at it from the standpoint of human relationships. And he, he, he gives us insight into who God knows. 
The prologue of John begins with these words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It goes into that passage and says everything came into being through Him, through the Word, and then it says, and the Word became flesh, took on our bodies, and lived in us, and then it says, He came to His own. That's us. God takes on human flesh and becomes one of His own. If we're His own, doesn't it stand to reason that He knows us? Chapter 1, the good guy. Philip has just met Jesus, and he runs off to find his friend Nathaniel, and he sees Nathaniel sitting down under the fig tree, and he says, Nathaniel, you'll never guess what. I think we've just met the Savior. And Nathaniel says, yeah, right. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, he said, well, come and see. So Nathaniel gets up, and he goes to see Jesus, and Jesus sees him coming and says, well, Nathaniel, here's an Israelite in whom there is no pretense. And Nathaniel is just dumbfounded. You know me? Why, yes, before Philip found you, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. You see, Jesus is saying, Philip, I know you. Or Nathaniel, I know you. I, I, I saw you long before you ever saw me. And, and Nathaniel's a good guy. He's, he's just an ordinary person. Uh, he's Joe Q. Pewsitter among the disciples, okay? You know, he is not Billy Graham. He is not Mother Teresa. And sometimes we think, I'm just the ordinary Christian. God doesn't know me. He just knows the biggies in the kingdom. Not so, Jesus says to Nathaniel, the ordinary guy. The good guy, but the ordinary guy. Hey, look at you. A guy in who there is no pretense. Nice to see you, Nathaniel. Wow. If you think you're just an ordinary nobody in the kingdom of God, I want you to know God knows you. Even when others don't. That's chapter 1. Chapter 3, the skeptic. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night because he's embarrassed to be seen talking to Jesus because he's caught somewhere between belief and unbelief. And Jesus leads him in this whole discussion about being born again. And he knows that he's a teacher of the law and he knows that he's searching and seeking. And Jesus opens up this marvelous passage about God so loved the world that comes as a part of this discourse because he wants Nicodemus to find the answers. If you're a skeptic this morning, God wants you to find the answers. He knows you're a skeptic. He already knows who you are. He just wants you to find the answers. Chapter 4 is the outcast. Jesus and the disciples go up into Samaria. And when the disciples go into the town of Sychar to get some supplies, Jesus sits down at a well because he knows who's coming to the well. It's not the right time of the day to go to the well, but this woman comes alone because she's the outcast. Nobody wants to be around this woman. And so Jesus shouldn't have talked to her by law of that day and time, religious code and law, but he does. And he has this marvelous communication with her, talking about where worship should take place and how worship should take place. And then he says to her, he said, why don't you go call your husband and bring him out here? And she said, I don't have a husband. He said, you're right. He said, you've been married five times. You've had five husbands and the man you're now living with is not your husband. And she is overwhelmed. And he offers her living water to drink instead of water from the well. And she goes back into the town and she says, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. The outcast. Jesus knew her before he saw her face to face or she saw him. He said, I know you. I just want you to know me. Chapter 5. The disabled man. Around the pool at Bethesda. By the way, the name Bethesda means house of mercy. The, the pool of Bethesda, there was, there was this pool. And, and the legend was 
that every once in a while an angel would stir the waters and the first person who got themselves into the water would find healing as the waters were stirred. And the whole place was filled with disabled folks and Jesus walks up to a man who had been there 38 years, been disabled for 38 years, and he said, well, you know, what's up with you? And the man says, well, I don't have anybody to help me get into the water. Every time the water is stirred, somebody beats me and I, and so here I sit and Jesus said, get up, take your mat and walk. Sometimes you're disabled and you think that nobody cares about you because there's something wrong with you. But I'm here to tell you that God knows you, loves you the way you are. And while you have been dependent upon others, he's asking you to become dependent upon him. Chapter 6, the hungry. Jesus takes the lunch of a small boy there and feeds 5,000 people. And they, they just can't believe what he's done. And the next day, he gives this discourse on, I am the bread of life. If you're spiritually hungry this morning, he already knows that, and he wants you to find him. Chapter 8, the sinful. This woman is found caught in the very act of adultery, and they drag her to Jesus, and they've got stones in their hand. They're ready to stone her, and they say, Jesus, what do we do about this? What do you think should happen? And he's doodling in the sand and the ground, and finally lifts up his head and he says, okay, whoever is sinless here, let the perfect person cast the first stone. Take her out if you want to, but you've got to be perfect to do it. And he starts doodling in the sand again, and you can just kind of hear all the rocks thudding to the ground as they all drop them and walk off. And he looks up and looks at the woman and says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and change your life. Go and leave your life of sin. Go and become who God wants you to become. You may be here today thinking, I've done so much stuff in my life that God could never forgive me and that God wouldn't care if I lived or died. But I'm here to tell you that God loves the outcast. He loves the disabled. He loves the person who's sinful because we're all in that boat. And aren't you glad that he loves the sinner and that he's made a way for the sinner? Just change your life and follow him. Chapter 9, the blind. Jesus happens upon a man, spits in the dirt, makes a little bit of mud, puts it on the man's eyes and told him to go wash in the pool. He does and he is able to see like he's never seen before in his life. And Jesus says, some of you are blind. You don't even know what you need, but I know who you are and I want you to see clearly. Just come to me. Chapter 11, the dead. Jesus waited until Lazarus had actually dead, was dead. His best friend, one of his best friends in this world, was actually dead. Waited four days. Do you know how much decay takes place in a human body after four days? But he goes back knowing all of this so that the power of God can be seen at work that even somebody dead four days is not lost to the knowledge of God. That God knew Lazarus and restored him so that we all might trust him. I suspect these people cover just about everything you could be. A good person trusting in your own merit, a skeptic looking for answers, an outcast who feels unworthy, disabled and dependent, inwardly hungry, looking for meaning and significance, sinful and expecting the worst of consequences, blind to the world around you and your own needs, or spiritually dead, looking and longing for living water and the bread of life. John covers it all, and then he ends up in the closing chapters talking about Jesus dying taking our place so that each one of these people might have life in him. You do not journey through this world alone. God knows who you are because you are his divine design. And you say, so what? Big deal. What's it matter to me? Well, here's my, here's my answer to that. 
God is basically saying, I, I know you, want you to know me. So suppose instead of me standing here right now, the person you want to meet most in this world is standing here. Whether that's an elected official, whether that is a, a movie star from Hollywood, whether that is an uh, a, a professional athlete, whether it is an Olympian gold medalist, uh, whether it is a musician that you just listen to over and over. Just suppose, you just in your mind pick the person you would like to meet most in this life, standing right here right now. And they look out over this audience and then they pick you out and they call you by name. Cho! Hey, it's so good to see you. You don't even know that he knows your name. You can't believe this. Joe, it's so good to see you. Man, I've got a concert tomorrow. I want you to ride on my bus to go to the concert. Your, your, draw, your jaw is just hanging there. And you think, wow. So are you going to respond by saying, eh, thanks, but no thanks. I really don't want to know you personally. W would you do that to the person you most want to meet in this world? I think not. I think you'd scramble over the tops of those pews and you'd get up here so fast it'd make your head swim. But what if God were saying to you, Jane, it is so good to see you this morning. I've been watching your life. I know things aren't easy at work. I, I, I know things aren't easy at home. I, I'd really like to help if you'd let me help. As a matter of fact, I, I, I want to be of assistance to you. I, I've known everything that's going on in your life. As a matter of fact, Jane, I... I have paid your travel expenses to heaven. You've got a trip paid in full, all expenses taken care of. I just want you to plan to make that trip, will you? I, I, really, I can't wait until you get here. If, if God said that to you, if Jesus stood here this morning and called you out by name and told you all of that, would you say, ah, thanks, but no thanks. I really don't want to know you that well. Because you see, that's exactly what God has said to you. Every, every part of that, God has already said to you. I love you, I know you, I've made it possible for you to go to heaven. And the reason sometimes I think we say, no, nah, I don't think I want to do it, because we want to do it on our own schedule. We want to do it on our own time. We want to control life in the best way we possibly can. We, we want to get it all scoped out and do it just exactly like we want to do it. But I'm here to tell you that life doesn't always go that way. Sometimes life deals us a hand that we don't really want to play, but we don't have any other choice, and so we have to play it. And it's in those moments when all of our plans and our dreams fall apart that knowing God makes all the difference. When the bottom falls out of our lives, knowing Him makes the only difference. Knowing Him as He already knows me is the only thing that makes it well with my soul. 